Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome. Welcome to Fired Up. Thank you for downloading and choosing our podcast to listen to. We hope we will make it worthwhile for your time. Uh, this is Steve. I host the podcasts uh, that come out each week, and we look at the American political system, what's right, what's wrong, and what makes us just exclaim, are you serious? Or WTF. Anyway, welcome to the podcast, everybody. Uh, we're going to kick right off into it, but first, as always, we're going to review where we are with the COVID pandemic. Uh, total cases are at 78.5 million. Uh, we are at 935,000 people who have died from the disease, so we continue to approach that uh, scary, magical 1 million mark uh, in, in the number of people who have died from the disease. And we have 548 million people who have uh, been vaccinated. 67% of those have at least received one dose, while 58.2% are uh, fully vaccinated. Uh, we don't have any statistics on the number of boosters, but I will uh, get out and try and do some research and hopefully bring it for the next podcast where we can see how many people have received uh, booster doses of the uh, coronavirus vaccine. Um, one thing to keep aware of is we continue to see downward trends in both hospitalizations and deaths. That doesn't mean that people aren't getting hospitalized uh, or it doesn't mean that people aren't dying. But what we're seeing is a marked reduction in the overall numbers compared to uh, where we were a year ago, six months ago, uh, you know, four months ago. And that's due in large part to the number of people who um, are vaccinated and continue to get vaccinated and the number of people who are practicing the safety protocols that have been discussed from our medical and scientific communities uh, steadily over the last two years. So keep up the good work. Uh, keep moving it forward. Uh, we are, are slowly but surely driving down the numbers and hopefully uh, we will get it to a point where it's manageable, uh, a la how we manage the flu every year. Um, don't know if it's ever completely going to go away. Time will tell on that. Um, related to uh, COVID cases, uh, we continue to see, and, and this is something that has started to get a little more uh, attention in the mainstream medias uh, about uh, reflections of just how tired people are of COVID-19. Uh, people are, you know, frustrated, irritated, tired of, you know, being trapped indoors, tired of the mandates. Uh, you know, we just want to be free to get back to something like the normal lives we had before COVID became the thing in our lives. Uh, and, you know, we are, we're making progress toward that people, you know, have faith, keep the faith, as uh, my hero, Adam Clayton Powell always used to say. And, you know, just a one day at a time, one step at a time, baby steps, and we'll get there. Uh, you know, it, it is clear that we have made tremendous progress in the last uh, 16 or 18 months. Uh, we continue to make steady progress both here in the United States and around the world. Uh, I was listening to a news article and they were saying that uh, Australia is reopening its border uh, to international visitors uh, after two years of it being closed. Uh, in part, they're able to do that because they have an overall vaccination rate of 97%. All right. And again, we have an overall vaccination rate of 58%. So that gives you kind of an idea of the distance we have yet to travel to where we pretty much could say, okay, we don't have to worry about this anymore uh, reasonably. And, you know, that should be our target. We should aim to be hitting the kind of numbers that other countries in the world are hitting. Uh, you know, Australia, as I said, 97 percent. 
Israel, over 90%. You know, there are countries out there that are, are getting the job done and are seeing some benefits. Then there are others who haven't been as diligent and they're still seeing, you know, the spiking and the crowded hospitals and so forth. So the incentive is there, people, for us to, to do our part to make sure that we are protecting ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities. Uh, but, you know, it, it ultimately, it comes down to uh, being vaccinated and being mindful of how we protect ourselves against getting the uh, virus in the first place. All right, so moving moving along to other other topics in, in uh, the show today, uh, we are a, a little bit more than as of the the date that I'm recording this podcast, uh, a little more than halfway through the month of February, and of course February is Black History Month, and you know we have uh, mentioned a few things about Black History. We haven't gone uh, deeply into you know what. Uh, Black History Month means uh, it, it is receiving wide coverage in much of the media out there uh, as it does every year. Um, but I, I am of the class that believes that black history is in fact American history and as such we need to be celebrating it uh, with the same vigor that we talk about the broader scheme of American history uh, every day of the year. But you know be aware that there are things that uh, black history uh, and, and the benefits of what the African-American culture has done in this country uh, that are you know, broad and uh, numerous in their, their numbers and you know, very difficult to fully measure. And while we don't have enough time uh, in, in the form of days in order to go through the, the list of patents uh, created by uh, African Americans in U.S. history, we can hit some of the highlights and uh, give you names and some of their most more notable patents. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Granville T. Woods, who lived from 1856 to 1910, uh, he uh, received a patent for uh, components for the steam boiler furnace. Uh, he had uh, patent received in 1885 uh, for an apparatus for transmission of messages by electricity, also known as the telegraph. Uh, he was instrumental in uh, some of the, the efforts to electrify the railway system in uh, the 1900s. Uh, what else? Uh, railway telegraphy uh, in 1887 and uh, so on. A lot of innovations uh, around electricity with Granville Woods. Lewis Latimer, uh, if uh, you were riding on a uh, train, if you were in a railway car uh, prior to around 1874 and needed to use a restroom, uh, you were limited to a bucket until uh, Lewis Latimer uh, received a patent for water closets for railway cars, a.k.a. Uh, bathroom. Uh, he worked, uh, got uh, a patent for his work on the electric lamp with uh, Joseph V. Nichols and uh, also got a uh, patent for a uh, locking rack for hats, coats, and umbrellas so that you could hang them up rather than just lay them on the floor or cross chairs and so forth. Uh, Garrett Morgan, another uh, prominent uh, African-American inventor, uh, he actually is most noted for inventing a breathing device, which would by today's terms be known as a gas mask. Uh, Garrett Morgan uh, lived from 1877 to 1963, uh, and he uh, received a patent for that in 1914. Uh, which was right around the time of World War One. He also uh, invented a mechanical traffic signal, uh, and that patent was granted in 1923. Uh, and you know, if you've seen old movies, you saw the signal with the signs that would slide up for stop or go, and then slide down, and so forth. Um, Elijah McCoy, uh, and you've no doubt heard the expression "the real McCoy." 
and that actually was coined based on observations of an invention of uh, Elijah McCoy, who lived from 1844 to 1929. Uh, he invented a device to automatically lubricate steam engines. Uh, prior to that, they, you would have to periodically stop the train, and an engineer would have to get out and lubricate key components and key parts of the engine in order to keep it working. Well, Elijah McCoy invented a device that would do that automatically as the engine was working. And one of the things that was, was mentioned was that the, one of the things that you could tell a, a, a well-manufactured and high-quality machine is if it had uh, the lubricating mechanism that was the real McCoy. That was the one that was patented by Elijah McCoy. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a wide range of things. Uh, the, for those of you that, that play golf, uh, if it wasn't for an African-American inventor, uh, you wouldn't have anything to tee the ball up when you're hitting your drive shot at, at the golf course. The golf tee was invented by an African-American. Uh, of course, there are various uh, combs and brushes that were uh, patented by uh, African-American, including a number of women. Uh, most notably, Madam C.J. Walker uh, had uh, some patents for uh, hair care uh, equipment and devices in her day. Um, by the way, Elijah McCoy also invented the eraser and received a patent for the eraser to allow you to correct all of those mistakes I made uh, when I was in elementary school. Um, Jan Matzlig Matzliger. Uh, he had a patent received for a nailing machine uh, for a uh, lasting machine. And lasting is the process of stitching uh, shoes, stitching the uppers to the soles of shoes. He invented and patented a lasting machine uh, that did that mechanically rather than by hand. And of course, George Washington Carver, uh, very widely known inventor and scientist, uh, he... Uh, unfortunately, he didn't file patents for the vast majority of his inventions. However, he was credited with uh, being, getting a patent for the process of producing paints and stains, and that was in 1927, uh, for cosmetic and process of producing the same. Uh, so, producing uh, cosmetics. Uh, so, you know, there, and there's a whole bunch uh, there's one here uh, for a um, Patricia Earl Bath, uh, born in 1942, and she received a patent in 2004 for a cataract extraction apparatus and method. And I gather that is a method, a machine, or, or a piece of functionality to remove uh, cataracts from eyes. Uh, she also received a patent for an ultrasound method for fragmenting, emulsifying, and removing cataracious lenses, another having to deal with the eye. Uh, so, you know, there's a just a ton. I, I, I don't have time to go through all of them, uh, but, you know, throughout the history of this country, dating back well into the early 1800s, uh, you know, uh, for example, I'm looking one here, Henry Blair, from 18, born 1807 uh, to 1860, received a patent for a seed planter, uh, which would allow for the automatic placement of seeds in farming. Um, you know, so just a, a huge range of uh, patents that were issued to, uh, to African Americans throughout U.S. history, which just goes to reinforce the point and say that um, African-American history is U.S. history. The two are uh, joined at the hip, are married, you know, are part and parcel of each other. I will be sure to publish that list on the uh, Facebook page for the show, uh, and that's at facebook.com slash firedupradio. Uh, take a moment, go out and check it. Uh, also, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you, you know, can not only listen to this episode again, you know, on demand, but you can also uh, download and listen to all of the more than 100 uh, Fired Up episodes out there 
on uh, your favorite social media platforms. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, you can go out and search for Fired Up uh, on any of those platforms and you'll get the current listing of our podcast and also the listings going back over the past two plus years for our radio show. And, you know, we thank you for listening and the attention and hope that you'll spread the word uh, about Fired Up and, you know, spread the message about what we do here on this program, which serves as an interesting segue into uh, what I want to uh, discuss next. And that is uh, a somewhat slight modification to the mission of this show. Uh, for those of you who are new, I will rehash because I haven't I haven't talked about what this show is about in a long time. So let me refresh uh, the 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 script on it. Uh, Fired Up is a uh, podcast now, uh, formerly a radio show on WJMS Radio, now a podcast on the WJMS Media platform, uh, and here we address issues of. Uh, politics here in the United States and you know for the most part uh, we don't address politicians that is we don't get into um, specific individuals unless they are you know inextricably wound into the narrative of the story we're trying to tell uh, that doesn't mean we won't talk about various political leaders and, and you know, senators and presidents and, and so on and so forth. But the focus of this show is more on what goes on in the political system, how it impacts the everyday uh, American citizen here in this country, and you know, how it presents itself uh, since you know, we, we are broadcast uh, over Mintwave Radio out of the UK. Shout out to Frazier and team over there. Uh, we do uh, hope to give a little bit of educational background as to just what the heck is going on with the American political system. Uh, although I don't know if there's anybody that can really give the definitive answer as to you know what drives our, our political system these days. Uh, I think it goes back to what I said before. It's like, seriously? Uh, or uh, a, a resounding WTF when it comes to talking about politics in the uh, good old U.S. of A. Um, but, you know, it, that's, that's what the show is about. And it, it's about empowering you folks, the listeners, as to what you can do uh, to impact, influence, and change how the politics in this country works. And, you know, if you don't think that your voice uh, doesn't carry the weight, uh, something to keep in mind is that um, in the, the swing states whose electoral votes gave the presidency to uh, Joe Biden over Donald Trump, uh, the difference in vote count was uh, a lot less than the, the 7 million people who voted for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. The margin of victory in terms of the Electoral College boils down to the electoral votes out of Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, which totaled uh, 57 electoral votes. But, you know, when you look at the number of actual physical ballots that represents, that was 124,364 vote, votes out of 18.6 million votes cast uh, just in, uh, you know, those states alone. So the, the margin of victory for Joe Biden uh, and the margin of defeat for Donald Trump uh, was extremely thin. You know, uh, again, you know, you're talking about uh, Biden getting uh, 80.4 million votes nationwide overall and Trump getting, uh, I believe it was 71 uh, or 72 million uh, votes uh, nationwide overall. So, you know, it, it is, you know, just crazy as to 
how narrow the margins are in the United States these days. And when we talk about the division in this country, uh, we are literally, you know, if you look at our Senate, we're a 50-50 Senate and a uh, 51-49% Democratic margin in the House. So, you know, it it is extremely tight uh, in terms of the margins. And that leads to what we're we're discussing more and more as we move through this year of 2022, uh, a.k.a. the midterm election year, where, you know, the the odds are and it's and not saying that it's, it's certain to happen. Um, we're, we're still many, many months out and anything could happen and uh, there could be a huge uh, sea change in, in terms of uh, voter uh, decisions uh, between now and then. But right now, you know, the, the odds makers are putting that uh, the Republicans are going to uh, take back the, the Senate and are most likely uh, going to take back the House as well because the margins are so slim. Uh, you know, and those numbers there give you an idea that you know, the 2020 election was decided from an electoral college standpoint by fewer people than attend an Ohio State football game. Uh, you know, so you know, it, it, is, it is just that dicey uh, and, and that unsettled in terms of the political nature here in the United States. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm of an age where I remember, um, you know, a, a landslide victory uh, where uh, I think it was Mondale got uh, one state in the District of Columbia and uh, I, I think it was Reagan uh, who defeated him, uh, ran the table across the rest of the country. Um, you know, the, the largest landslide victory in American history. But that being said, that doesn't mean that, you know, we, the ordinary people, can't have, uh, don't have, and, and shouldn't have an influence lever in our political system. Um, and, and that really is, as, as this show has called out over the, the years and over the episodes, we have had what are called call to action where we're giving you suggestions on things that you can actually do to uh, make your voice heard uh, both individually and collectively as a, you know, uh, a, a street, a block, a community, a neighborhood, a city, a town, a county, uh, a region and a state uh, for things that you want to see your elected officials do on your behalf. As we've said on this show many times, Uh, We uh, elected them, we hired them to do the job, and if they're not doing the job according to what we want them to do, it is in our interest, our best interest, to show them the door. And in no uncertain terms, to let them know that if you are not going to uh, follow the guidance that I am giving you as the electorate, then, you know, don't be surprised when we vote you out of office. Uh, We want people who are going to do what we send them to that elected office to do, whether it's at your your city or county level, whether it's at your state level, or whether it's at the federal level, um, you know. And it 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 seems sometimes. Now let me rephrase that. It seems many times that, especially at the federal level, that our political elected officials um, just totally forget that we are out here once they get into office. And the, the problem with that, truth be told, is we let them get away with it. We let them get comfortable with the fact that they think they don't have to answer to us for what they do. Um, and that is something that we are going to need to change, whether you're a Democrat, an independent, or a Republican. The one thing that we have to get back into our grasp as the electorate is to let them know that we control what they do ultimately. We control what they do through the power of the ballot box, through our ability to vote them out of office if they're not doing what we want them to do. And you know that 
it has been the call of action that we've had on many occasions here in this show. It's almost, it, it is a recurring theme. It's something I talk about just about every show. Well, for 2022 and beyond, we're going to expand that. So in addition to what we call a call to action, uh, we're going to coin a new phrase called practice activism. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that uh, a, a call to action or a call to awareness is a good thing. It's a noble thing. Where the rubber meets the road is when that, that call to action turns into a practice of activism and where we take what we know, what we decided is what needs to be done, and then we actually go do the things that work to make that happen, whether it's a, you know, letter writing campaigns, uh, whether it is peaceful, underscore, underline, let me say it again, peaceful demonstration to, to illustrate our point, um, whether it is you know, engaging with our elected officials at every opportunity we have to be in their presence. Uh, so when they're out of Washington, D.C., back home, that means they have office hours. That means they are in their constituent offices uh, supposed to meet with their constituents. Well, we need to make sure that, you know, that uh, that activism includes meeting with them in their offices or on the street or in town hall forums or wherever it is that we get a chance to be face-to-face -to, -face to look them in the eye and ask them to explain their decisions or why they uh, disregard what clearly the overwhelming majority of their constituents thinks ought to happen. You know, think about it. How many, med how many issues out there have we heard that there is a 60%, a 55%, a 70%, a 75% public uh, opinion on, you know, whether that initiative is, you know, positive or negative is going forward or not. Public opinion in the 75% the range uh, on, you know, such, such issues, and yet our elected officials vote like those numbers don't exist you know and that's one of the things that we need to ask them when they're telling us you know what they're doing for us and you go well what about um you know pick a subject what about you know and and it can be abortion rights the majority of american people don't think that it needs to go away a majority of conservative uh people on the right uh, think that, you know, those laws need to be drastically changed or eliminated. But the American people as a whole still favor a woman's right to choose. All right. Yet, if you would listen to the rhetoric that comes out of our, our political leadership, you would think that, you know, the that two thirds of the country is adamantly opposed to, you know, uh, to the right to choose. Well, it's not true. It, it, it's not true. And the, the numbers prove it time and time, year over year, et cetera. Um, you know, it, it's the, the same thing with uh, voting rights and access to the polling places. What we have seen is a, a less than majority of people in this country are swinging way above their weight class in terms of their influence over political leadership. All right. So, you know, we, we said this before. If you look at the, the Senate, uh, the Senate is, you know, 50-50, but the 50 percent of Republicans uh, represent only about 28 to 30 percent of the American population. So, again, they are swinging way over their weight in terms of the number of people they actually physically represent and then the amount of influence they control. Uh, so, you know, that's something you need to be aware of that you know, when you see the, the leadership, when you see our elected officials ignoring the will of the people, it's because they're not feeling the will of the people. Well, how do we how do we correct that? Well, 
we correct it with a call to action. That is, as, as we say each week, communicating with your elected official, uh, whether it's by phone, by mail, by email, by fax, by, you know, uh, social media page or whatever, and let them know your opinion frequently, often, and repeatedly. Uh, it's getting that message in front of them. And then it is following up with some level of physical activism, you know, whether it is going to their office, their office in Washington, D.C., going to their local office in your home state uh, and, you know, talking with them or with their representatives. Uh, it is calling their local office and leaving messages with their staff uh, to make your opinions and your positions known. Uh, we have got to stop being lethargic and lazy about communicating with our elected officials. And, you know, as I said, right now, Democrats are in control of the House and have and, and just barely in control of the Senate. That could change. And then we're going to be having this conversation with Republicans. And while, you know, the the political landscape may change the message from the people needs to be constant so okay mr or ms republican uh you've gotten elected but you know there are more than just republicans in your state uh you can't ignore me even though you know i may wear blue and you wear red uh i am still a constituent of yours you are still uh sworn to uh to serve uh, my wishes as well as those of Republicans. So we're going to have a conversation and we shouldn't take, you know, no for an answer or I don't talk to Democrats for an answer or whatever. Uh, if they're not going to talk with us, then that needs to be communicated and made a public message and needs to be the basis of the campaign to remove them from office in the next election. Um, one of the things to keep in mind, and, and again, this is that that call to action crossover into practicing activism. Keep in mind that uh, U.S. congressmen serve only a two year term. They got elected in 2020 and now they are up for reelection here in 2022. And uh, of that and. Um, you should be aware of uh, what that means. So on the uh, midterm election that will happen on Tuesday, November 8th of this year, uh, all 435 seats in the House of Representatives and a third or 34 of the 100 seats in the Senate will be contested. Uh, so what that means is that the, the you know, if somehow some way all of them got thrown out of office we'd have 435 brand new uh u.s united states congressmen uh in washington dc now of course that won't happen there are people who are in safe districts uh who are going to get reelected, who are running unopposed and so on and so forth but uh there will be uh contested elections uh that occur working up to november and there will be new uh, new people in the House of Representatives. Um, in addition to that, 39 states uh, and territories have uh, gubernatorial and you know, numerous other state and local elections that are also being contested. So, you know, it, this is, it, it's a big year. And finally, keep in mind that this will be the first election that will be affected by the redistricting that is uh, going on as we speak as a result of the 2020 census. Uh, and, you know, we, we've spent many episodes over the last uh, couple of months talking about redistricting and, and what that's going to mean. Um, let me go through and give you a few uh, slices of what's happening uh, in the elections coming up in November. Uh, as I said, 34 of the 100 Senate seats uh, will be up for election. Uh, and there are a couple of special elections in addition to that 
that will be uh, held to fill vacancies uh, in, in the other classes of Senate seats. And, and by the way, uh, if you hear that term, uh, class three Senate seats, uh, because of, you know, it's 100 seats, you divide it by three, you get two groups of 33 and one group of 34. Well, the, the group of 34 is called a class three. The two groups of 33 are called class one and class two, respectively. So, you know, there are a few seats uh, that will be up for a special election that aren't in the class three group, uh, but, you know, will nonetheless uh, be, be filled by an election of the people. And mostly those are for Senate seats that are, are vacant due to uh, a death or, you know, a, a uh, position uh, taken or appointment by the president to a cabinet position and so forth. For example, uh, the seat that uh, former Senator, now Vice President Kamala Harris held in California uh, is, was filled by the governor uh, once she took office on January 18th. So, you know, that seat needs to be filled by an election, uh, which will happen in November. Um, in the House of Representatives, uh, all 435 uh, voting seats in the House will be uh, up for election. Uh, in addition to those that are just part of the normal competition that goes on, you know, every two years, um, 43 representatives, of which 30 are Democrat and 13 are Republicans, they've indicated that they will be retiring uh, and will not be running for re-election in the upcoming races in November. So those will guaranteed to be brand new, uh, newly minted uh, congressmen and women uh, joining the House of Representatives. Uh, the, you know, the others will be uh, voted in and realize that some changes will be made due to redistricting where districts have been combined. So the landscape of the House is likely going to change from a personnel standpoint. Um, but ultimately, all 435 people will be running. So uh, that means that you know, from from a from an activist standpoint, and this is something that you should take note of if you're, you know, one of those individuals who believes in communicating with your elected officials like I do. And that is that they're up for reelection. They're all up for reelection. So that means their radar is up for issues that are brought to their attention by their constituents that seem to have uh, a, a good, strong pulse and heartbeat and is something that uh, it, 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 you know, it would indicate that there is great interest in. So if you have an issue, uh, now is the time or you actually should be well into raising awareness on your issue, getting people uh, behind you and making the noise through uh, petitions and through, uh, you know, communication with your elected official that this is an issue that you want to see them address in the coming term. This is why they need to address it. And, you know, this is the consequences if they don't address it. Uh, you need to raise, you know, the, the temperature of that issue to that congressperson so that becomes something that's on their radar to get done. That's the way it works. You know, if, if there's an issue, uh, whether it's, you know, voting on Sunday, you know, or, you know, 24 hour voting, uh, you know, on the weekend, uh, on the weekends before Election Day, whatever. Um, if that is the hot button issue that is is having the conversations in your district, that needs to be communicated to your representative so that they're aware of it, so that they can uh, take the temperature to see, you know, well, is, is this just a, an isolated thing or is this getting widespread traction because uh, if it's getting widespread traction if the media has picked up on it hint hint uh, if you know there are uh, local level politicians that are getting questioned on it 
and are you know raising those questions up the chain to you know the the leadership in Washington D.C. Hint, hint. Um, you know those are the types of things that get uh, citizen initiatives attention and action. So you know again, that's that practicing activism. If you know you think it's a good idea, uh, you get two more people who think it's a good idea. They get two more people each who think it's a good idea and so on and so on and so on. Guess what? Before too long, you have a movement. And, you know, that is how change happens. Politicians will move heaven and earth when they see that they are on the wrong side or they are on no side of an issue that has widespread public appeal. Uh, they will come down on one side or the other, uh, but they will they will stake a stake a claim on it. So you have to make sure that if it's an issue of importance to you and your community, uh, that you're checking with the next community over and the next zip code and the next area code and the next county and the next state to find those issues that deserve the attention of your elected officials all the way up the chain. So just a thought, you know, as I was saying, hint, hint, that's how activism works. So, you know, the call to action is we need to raise awareness. The activism comes in when we actually start doing things to make that happen in a real and physical way. So that's that's where this program is going to increase and expand its focus uh, starting in 2022, starting right now and moving forward. We are we are still all about the call to action. Don't get me wrong, but we're also going to follow that call to action up with the practice of activism. So that's that's what we want to to engage with and encourage. Um I am actively working on getting some guests onto the show so that we can have, you know, more than just my opinion, that we can have thoughtful discussion on the issues and the activism and the actions that need to be taken, uh, whether at a local, a state or a federal level. So plenty of things coming and fired up as we move through 2022. And what better time than Black History Month to, to launch it all off with. So stay tuned and I will keep you posted as things go forward. And let's turn the page one more time as we uh, continue talking on subjects under the heading of Black History Month. Uh, so I ask this question. If I say to you the phrase, the Black Panther Party, what image comes to mind? Is it the image of... Uh, strong black men in black berets, leather jackets with uh, shotguns at their hips, standing uh, at the steps of a uh, city government building? Uh, if that's your answer, then in part, you're correct, but that's nowhere near the whole picture. Uh, as, as we study you know, black history in this country, we also have to think about black political history in this country. And there have been some mighty milestones that have that have occurred that go largely unnoticed. Well, we're going to take a couple of minutes and notice a few of them. So the first African-American to run for the office of president of the United States was uh, no less an individual than Frederick Douglass, who in 1848 became the first African-American presidential candidate in the U.S., uh, according to Wikipedia, his uh, candidacy largely preceded uh, black suffrage and coincided with legal slavery in the U.S. Uh, we've come a long way since then. Uh, if you go to Wikipedia and look up African-American United States presidential candidates, you get a pretty exhaustive list uh, dating back to 1904. Uh, in uh, George Edward Taylor from the National Liberty Party uh, down through uh, a, a jump to 1960. Uh, Clinton Washington King Jr. Uh, was the second 
uh, technically third man, to run for the office of president of the United States after George Edwin Taylor uh, and, and go down. In 1968, Eldridge Cleaver, noted uh, writer and political activist, uh, and also one of the early leaders of the Black Panther Party, uh, ran for president. Uh, Dick Gregory, who was an outspoken uh, comedian, uh, longtime conspiracy theorist, civil rights and vegetarian activist, uh, he ran for president uh, on the Freedom and Peace Party. Uh, we've had um, Larry Holmes, uh, Workers World Party, uh, ran. Uh, what else we got? <laughs> I'm just going down through this list, and it's quite extensive. Uh, James Warren, a journalist and steel worker who ran as the Socialist Party uh, candidate for United States president in 1988 and 1992. Uh, we've had uh, Cynthia McKinney, who ran uh, under the Green Party banner in 2008. Uh, along with Alan Keyes, who was an American conservative and political activist. Uh, he ran for president in 2008. Uh, and uh, uh, James Harris, who was an American communist politician and members of the National Committee for the Socialist Workers Party, he also ran in 2008. And, oh yeah, there was that other guy, Barack Obama, who ran for president uh, in the Democratic Party and uh, actually uh, won both 2008 and again he won re-election in uh, 2012 and I, I, I make light of it but I'm not making light of it um, so 2020 Kanye West ran uh, so okay <laughs> And a woman named Jade Simmons, American classical concert pianist, who was an independent uh, presidential candidate in 2020. So, you know, there's a long list of people who've run for president uh, and uh, across many different parties. Uh, some of the notables that uh, also didn't make their party's nomination uh, that were nonetheless noteworthy. Shirley Chisholm, uh, Walter Fauntleroy, who was a pastor, civil rights activist, and uh, politician. Uh, Barbara Jordan uh, from Texas, American lawyer, educator, and politician. Uh, she was a leader in the civil rights movement, very outspoken. Uh, of course, Jesse Jackson, well-known uh, political activist, Baptist minister, and politician. Doug Wilder, who was the first uh, black governor of Virginia. So, yeah, and it, it goes on and on and on. Uh, there was a lot of uh, African-American candidates for uh, president and vice president. Uh, you can find them if you... Uh, search list of African-American presidential candidates in Wikipedia. It gives you a really extensive list. Uh, too long to go through here, but worth noting uh, because, you know, it, it is not an unusual thing, uh, especially in the last, oh, uh, you know, 40 years or so. There has been almost continual stream of African-American candidates from various parties, not just Democrat and Republican, who have run to, uh, to seek the office of president. And, you know, realistically, and, and I've heard some of them interviewed over the years, um, you know, they realize that, you know, if they are from the uh, Libertarian Party or the Green Party or the Peace and Freedom Party, you know, the likelihood that they are going to achieve, you know, 270 electoral votes and become president of the United States uh, is uh, somewhere south of, of none, uh, you know, in the county of Slim. But the idea is that just through their campaign, 
And, you know, the, the lesson that we learn here is the, the activism of campaigning is enough to start conversations that can take hold, uh, spring root and grow uh, and flower into movements down the road. So, you know, that's, that's what we say when, you know, we're practicing activism is the call to action is uh, to decide you're going to run. The activism is to run and spread your message and speak to as many people and as, as wide an audience as possible and thus hopefully sprinkle enough seeds of information and curiosity out there to grow a, a, a movement, to grow a more sustained movement in the future. So that that's kind of, you know, the... You know, I won't say it's a grandiose goal of this show, but that's kind of the the philosophy behind, as I say, adding the practice activism to our call to action here on this show. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear back from all of you out there. What do you think? Send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. Uh, you can, of course, uh download this and any of the other podcasts uh, of the show from, you know, the all the the usual suspects in terms of the libraries for podcasts, you know, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're out there. Or if you just go to Google and search for Fired Up Podcast, you should find uh, one or more links to our show from from that. Uh, as always, Thank you all for for listening. I appreciate the fact that you took the time to uh, to listen or to download and uh, hopefully, you know, reach out and communicate. Let's let's have a dialogue. Uh, if you have show ideas, let me know. I'll be happy to uh, look into them and, and bring them forward. Uh, everybody, please stay safe and we will be launching out another episode in seven days. Take care, everybody. 